Good evening and welcome to the Pratt Library um, and um, to an evening with um, Baron Wormser. Um, Baron Wormser was born in Baltimore, attended Baltimore City College, and earned his BA from Johns Hopkins University uh, with graduate work at the University of California, Irvine, and the University of Maine. His many collections of poetry include The White Words, When, which won a Catherine A. Morton Prize in Poetry, Subject Matter, Scattered Chapters, New and Selected Poems, and Impenitent Notes. His work of prose include his latest work, the novel Teach Us That Piece, and a short story collection, The Poetry Life, Ten Stories. From 1975 to 1998, Mr. Wormser lived with his family in an off-the-grid house on 48 acres in Maine, and his memoir, The Road Washes Out in Spring, a poet's memoir of living off the grid, chronicles that experience. He has also co-authored two books on the craft of poetry with Dave Capella. Mr. Wormser has received the Frederick Bach Prize from the journal Poetry, and as mentioned, the Catherine A. Morton Prize, along with fellowships from Breadloaf, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. Mr. Wormser also worked as a librarian for 25 years in Maine and taught poetry writing at the University of Maine at Farmington. In 2000, he was writer in residence at the University of South Dakota, and from 2000 to 2005 was poet laureate of Maine. He taught in the Stone Coast MFA program at the University of Southern Maine for eight years and currently teaches in the Fairfield University MFA program and is the director of educational outreach at the Frost Place in Franconia, New Hampshire. For over 20 years, he has taught widely in schools throughout the United States, working with students and teachers, believing that the teaching of poetry should open students up to the experience of art, an experience that moves outward from the center of individual responsiveness to language. He currently lives in Cabot, Vermont, with his wife, Janet. In Baron Wormser's new novel, Teach Us That Piece, set in Baltimore in 1962 through 1963, the turmoil and change ex existing within America through the growing civil rights movement and the world in the shape of the Cold War is similarly found within a family who begin to face these outward changes and fears and those within themselves. Along the way, for those of us from Baltimore, there are many recognizable places and names, among them the space we are in tonight. As Mr. Wormser reveals how a city and history are inseparable from the individuals who move and struggle to live within it. Please join me in welcoming Baron Wormser. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming out this evening. It's a pleasure to be here in this beautiful room, in this, um, in this wonderful library, where I spent many, many hours um, as a boy growing up here in, uh, in Baltimore. I'm going to read tonight uh, from a couple chapters from the novel. Uh, the novel um, is indeed set in 1962-63 in, um, in Baltimore. 
the background is the Cold War and um, the Civil Rights Movement um, as it played out nationally and as it uh, played out in Baltimore. Um, my characters, my two main characters, are a 39-year-old mother of three, Susan Mermelstein, uh, who teaches English at a high school in Baltimore, um, and her son Arthur, who's 16 years old and uh, goes to City uh, College here in Baltimore. Uh, chapters are alternating uh, between these two characters, um, third person. So I'm going to begin with a Susan uh, chapter, and I'm, in, I'm going to then read um, two, two Arthur chapters. Um, um, you don't need to know that much. Her husband is named Stan, and it's probably about it. She's um, In this chapter, she's going to... She has met, um, in the parlance of the time, a Negro school teacher who teaches at City, who is a music teacher, and um, she's going to see him again in this chapter. Stan had told Susan that there wasn't much point in going to parent-teacher night because Arthur always did well at school. He's AWOL upstairs sometimes, but he does his work. Susan felt odd at that moment because her husband so rarely said anything about their children. They might as well have been cows or sheep as human beings. It wasn't that he didn't love them. It was that he was a male with other matters on his mind beside the inner lives of his offspring. Or it was that he didn't know that they had inner lives because his own was so harnessed to his work. Years ago, she had gotten used to their separate domains. She wasn't reading updates about taxes, and he wasn't reading about the Impressionists. She agreed with him, but told him she was going anyway because teachers owe that to other teachers. Solidarity, huh? He half asked, half stated. He sounded amused more than anything else. Stan didn't criticize her being in the teachers' union, but he didn't favor it either. He voted Republican because that was the party of businessmen. She voted Democrat. He thought Adlai Stevenson was an egghead. She thought Adlai was articulate and charming. It wasn't his fault he hadn't been a general. Arthur's high school, the stony, gothic dream of some 1920s architects, looked like a cross between a church and a castle. Walking through the metal locker line corridors and sitting through a succession of 10-minute classes should have been comforting. Susan knew what a high school was like and what teachers were like, but as the evening went along and she listened to the spiels about what was being taught in chemistry and U.S. history, she felt more and more unnerved or worse, enthralled by a dim god who decreed a uniform hygiene of grades, tests, blackboards, lined pieces of paper, and uncomfortable desks. Though every teacher perked up at the mention of Arthur's name, she felt dreary, and if anything, she worried that Arthur trusted books too much. What did Thomas Hardy, she's a great Thomas Hardy fan, she teaches The Return of the Native, done for her besides getting her sense of exciting her sensibility and offering the mordant outlook that Joe Costa 
had quoted, he's a fellow teacher, did it help anyone to know about the unhappy likes of Eustacia Vi? And what was it that Hardy couldn't even mention, though it lay there glimmering like a forbidden jewel? Sex. Throughout her tempestuous tryst, Eustacia writhed in the vise of what was natural yet forbidden. Susan's own son was doing his share of writhing these days. Yet whenever she asked Stan if Arthur ever asked him about sex, Stan would blurt, no, and turn to another topic as if to say, why would a father and son talk about that? But men didn't ask for directions when they were lost either. Seely had noted to her that those stains on, that's their maid, Seely, uh, those stains on Arthur's sheets were hard to get out. Use bleach, she answered. Seely reminded her that bleach take the life out of the cloth. Use bleach, she repeated. At random moments, she found herself wishing she had something to bleach. She fantasized about being one of those Toulouse-Lautrec prostitutes. Her round-cheeked, brown-eyed, Jewish face peered out from rumpled sheets. She spent her days and nights in and out of a negligee. Her life went no further than her cunt. She never spoke that word, but she thought it. It was a far-fetched vision, but it wasn't. At 8 o'clock, a bell went off, and a voice on the loudspeaker announced that classes were over. Parents were free to go to the cafeteria for cookies and milk. Susan stood at the top of a stairwell on the second floor and thought how little she wanted chocolate chips mingled with chat about college admissions and levels of algebra. What she wanted was to scream and sing at the same time like some of the music her son listened to. As dutiful parents walked by her, she recalled there was a music teacher she knew in this school. She set off toward his classroom. He was there hunched over a piano, his square-cut woolen necktie dangling in front of him. She stood at the open door of the large band room filled with instruments, music stands, and classroom chairs. As he sampled a series of notes over and over, he seemed to be probing as much as playing them. Then he launched into a sustained sequence. Rich, rising sounds struck the lifeless air as if some hope at last had been realized. That's from Rhapsody in Blue, Susan exclaimed. Jarvis Baker raised his head but kept playing until the melody exhausted itself. When he stopped, he rested his hands on his knees and slowly turned toward the doorway. I didn't know anyone was there. I was pretending I was Leonard Bernstein. He can play the hell out of that piece. Susan stepped over the threshold. So can you. In musicianship, a wink is not as good as a nod. It's about thoroughness and sustaining your attack. Bernstein, he can sustain it, which is tricky, because Gershwin goes through a lot of changes in that section. He rose from the piano bench and stretched his arms out above his head. Excuse me, but it's been a long day. 
What brings you here tonight, Mrs. Mermelstein? I thought I would see what your classroom looked like. Susan paused and ran a hand down the front of her dress to reassure herself. It was a navy blue dress, solidly colored on top, but with tiny white dots on the skirt. It cinched at the waist with a small black belt. Lou, who's her best female friend, who admitted to spending too much on clothes, had complimented her on it. My classroom? If they would just keep the piano in tune, I'd be happy, Jarvis said. Any of your children play an instrument? He walked over to his desk and began to sort through a sizable mound of clutter. The girls have started flute lessons, but they seem more interested in dancing. They both take tap. She looked around at the posters Jarvis had put up. One was for a Mozart festival in Europe. One was for the Miles Davis Quartet. Where did you learn to play? Jarvis looked up from the sheet music, union memoranda, and record sleeves. I played since I was a boy. My mama played, but I really learned to play when I went to Howard over in D.C. Excellent music department. Todd Duncan, who was the original Porgy, was a Howard professor. He looked more keenly at Susan, who had not advanced any further into the room. Of course, you may only know Howard as a name, if that. It's on the other side of the Great Divide. He was standing very erect now and had shoved his hands into his pants pockets. He leaned his head back. You can come in all the way, Susan. I won't bite. The Great Divide, Susan asked. She walked forward until she stood on the other side of his wooden desk. You won't find it on any map, but you won't find the color line either. Metaphors never make it onto maps. Jarvis smiled crookedly. Susan clutched at her small leather pocketbook, then realized her cigarettes were in her car. I understand you know that I teach with Joe. You know what my school is like. I do indeed. The line is starting to get smudged. Some folks want to outright erase it. Uppity ministers with doctorates in theology, for instance. Some folks, a whole lot of folks, and not just down south, don't. He frowned. Susan could feel his hands dig more deeply into his pockets. The energy of his piano playing stood right there in front of her. His every motion was compelling. She took a small step back. As it had done that day at Joe's, his face suddenly cleared the storm passing through him in seconds. She found herself marveling. Her storms didn't do that. Well, I need a cigarette, Susan paused. I guess I'll be going. Thanks for letting me see your room. No need to rush off. As a teacher, I'm here to talk with parents, and you're a parent. Do you like Gershwin, by the way? I love him. I have a recording with Harry Belafonte and Lena Horn where they sing songs from Porgy and Bess. They sing, Bess, you is my woman, together. I love that. Susan moved a self-conscious step forward. And I remember when he died. I was six years old, but I remember everyone saying that George Gershwin had died. I remember someone coming into our apartment and playing a record. I remember how sad people were. Funny, isn't it, what we remember, Jarvis said. He took his hands out of his pockets. The hands were almost out of proportion to the rest of him. He picked up the small globe on his desk and spun it. 
as if, as if each moment those hands had to have something to toy with. It is funny. Susan's eyes lingered on the globe. Then she turned toward the door. Thanks again for your hospitality. Would you like to hear that song? Jarvis asked. Susan had only taken a step or so. I'd be honored. After a final spin, Jarvis set the globe down, went over to the piano, and placed himself on the bench that stood before it. You can sit right here and watch. Like I said, I won't bite. Growl some, maybe, but not bite. He smiled at his words, a warmer smile. Susan realized the thought was like blood thrumming in her veins, how being close to him was what she wanted to do when she walked into the room. Very deliberately, she sat herself down. The billow of her skirt touched his pant leg. She held her breath. He began to play. Susan could feel him entering the music, the compact body beside her, relaxing even as energy was coursing through him. His hands moved precisely without hurry, seemingly obeying their own genius. The melody's emotion, yearning and decisive, began to touch her the way it always touched her. The power of a man and a woman coming together lived in that song. In her head, she sang the words, The real happiness is just begun. When the music had spent itself, its aching intensity burnishing the silence, Jarvis held his hands up in the air before him. Slowly, he brought them back down onto the keyboard. Susan didn't move. That was beautiful. Thank you. It's strange music. Two Jews speaking through Negroes. He paused and looked down as if to query his now still hands. Maybe that's the best of all worlds. Maybe it's ludicrous. What did the Gershwins from New York City know about Catfish Alley? They imagined it. But I guess that's what we all do all the time. Imagine. What else can we do? There's good imagining and there's bad imagining. Our prejudice... Our blindness, a bell sounded out in the corridor. I heard Professor Duncan sing it one day at school. I'll never forget that, sort of like you remembering George Gershwin's death, but not sad, no. It inspired me. He gazed up at the clock on the wall. Like I said, it's been a long day. The music had passed. He was asking her to move on. Susan wondered whether she could do it. She could smell him and almost touch the fabric of his cotton shirt. She could feel the warmth of him. The burden of the song lingered there between them. You is my woman. She rotated her legs away from Jarvis so as to turn her back to him. It seemed to take whole minutes, but in a moment she rose up. Thanks again, Jarvis, for the performance. You're talented. Susan started toward the door. Jarvis waved a hand, dismissing the instruments and music stands as so many sorcerers' apprentices. This is my world. I'm glad you stopped by to see it. He slumped over. Whatever he had to give, he had given. Under the bleak overhead lights, the back of his neck shone a soft beige. Susan didn't have to open the door because she had never shut it. When she said a small bye, it was more to the empty hallway than to Jarvis Baker. She checked herself, pocketbook in hand, head on her shoulders, shoes on her feet. 
daily life to say nothing of the relentless headlines crushed so many feelings. You didn't realize it until you had one. So that's a, that's a Susan chapter. Um, I'm going to read an Arthur chapter, um, which uh, takes place at um, City College here in, uh, in Baltimore. And this is right after the Cuban Missile Crisis has been um, resolved, as it were. So he's in his history class. He's sitting next to a couple of buddies of his. And um, there are references to um, his parents are, um, look like they're going to get divorced, and that is upsetting him. He's uh, met a girl, he's excited about her, named Rebecca, and you'll hear about that. Mr. Toby's classroom proclaimed his patriotism. Color reproductions of portraits of American presidents along with photos in black and white of the more recent ones lined the wall above the blackboards on the side of the room opposite the windows. The wall above the blackboard in front of the room was covered with reproductions of colonial American flags. Mr. Toby especially liked to point to the don't tread on me flag and tell the boys how that was the real American spirit. His favorite president was Teddy Roosevelt. There were sayings by various eminences on the back wall, people like Horace Greeley, Abraham Lincoln, and General Patton. Edward Trumbull, now Edward Trumbull is, um, is uh, a Negro uh, friend of Arthur's in his high school who is essentially a mentor to Arthur about the world of race in Baltimore. And he is the son of a professor, and you'll hear what Edward's like. Edward Trumbull asked Mr. Toby at the beginning of the year if he was going to put up some words of Martin Luther King Jr. up there. Mr. Toby smiled a bland smile, a modest incision on his small, sallow face, and said he would think about it. The first quarter of the school year was nearing its end. There were no words by Dr. King on the back wall. History is now, Mr. Toby liked to remind his classes, which outside of the classroom his students turned into, history is a cow. When after taking attendance, he told his second period history class that he suspected it was just a matter of time before those bombers are removed from Cuba and this whole thing is done with. He waited a few meaningful moments before intoning his favorite phrase. He went on to say how important it was that the United States had stood up to the forces of communism, how the United States had taught the Soviet Union a lesson that it would not soon forget. It's been a little tense over these couple of months, but we're still standing. I'm proud of us. Arthur pondered his teacher for what seemed like the one millionth time. Like a lot of teachers, Mr. Toby wore more or less the same clothes every day. He had two V-neck sweaters. One had an argyle pattern on it, and the other was a solid pale green. Today he had on the argyle. He had on his blue tie, not his brown tie or his gray tie. 
Arthur looked out the window. A few leaves danced in the breeze, refusing to fall to earth. He watched them flit and flutter. The best thing about history class was that Mr. Toby barely noticed what was going on. He just as soon would have talked to a room full of shoes or orange peels as human beings. Or it seemed like that, which was fine because Arthur could sit and gaze out the high windows and daydream. Today, though, he wondered if his mother was for real about his parents separating. Her face had been serious in that way adults could get serious, where you sensed they knew something bad and were only telling you part of it. The part they weren't telling you was worse than the part they were telling you. It was like when Ruby, his grandmother, talked about the Holocaust. Her words were ghosts, but her silences were monsters. He sighed. It wouldn't be bad to be a leaf in the wind, no worries and no thoughts floating through space. You wouldn't know you were in Baltimore or Berlin or Tokyo. Then he wondered when he would touch Rebecca's breasts again. Even in the dusty deadness of the classroom, his prick stirred. He didn't want to be a leaf after all. John Silverman sat on one side of Arthur's desk and Herbie Freilich on the other. Today, Silverman was drawing a side view of a 1959 Chevrolet Impala. Arthur thought that it wasn't a bad likeness, the fins looked sharp, and the overall proportion seemed right. Silverman would have taken mechanical drawing every period if the school let him. On the other side, Herbie Freilich was reading a life of John D. Rockefeller that he had in his lap. Herbie would look up occasionally and notice Mr. Toby, push his thick glasses back up on the bridge of his nose, and then dive back into his book. No one in the class took notes because Mr. Toby based his tests and quizzes on the textbook. As long as your textbook was open on your desk, Mr. Toby was okay with you. When he asked a question, it was usually, wouldn't you agree with that, Mr. So-and-so? He called the boys Mr. All you had to do was reply, yes, sir. And Mr. Toby was happy. He was like a toy train that went around and around on a fact-filled track. Arthur looked down at his desk. He had a notebook full of blank pages beside his textbook. Maybe he should write a poem to Rebecca. Or maybe he should write a letter to his mother about how confused he felt, how grown-ups were supposed to work things out, not just give up. Or maybe he should make a paper airplane. He ripped a page out and started to fold the paper when he heard Edward Trumbull's voice. Edward sat in the first row. Back in September, he had explained to Mr. Toby that Negroes didn't like to sit in the back of anything. One of the other Negro guys promptly told Mr. Toby that he was fine with sitting out back. More than once, when he had overheard some of those same guys talking, he had heard Edward's name and the phrase, full of himself, nigger. Why should I care about those bombers, Mr. Toby? I can't vote in many parts of this country. I can't go out to eat in many parts of this country, or this city for that matter. And the fact is, if I tried to buy a house in most parts of this very city, I'd be brushed off or told to go back to Africa. 
Do you expect me as a Negro to feel good about some missiles that aren't in Cuba? Edward's voice was calm, as if he were reading from the textbook about the Louisiana Purchase. Sometimes Mr. Toby actually read from the textbook, just to put to sleep those of us who are still awake, was how Herbie Freilich put it. Mr. Toby made a choking sound, but then cleared his throat. The sound reminded Arthur of his father's habit of throat clearing, though Arthur didn't think that Mr. Toby had a sinus condition. Mr. Toby had a teacher as pontificator condition. Edward, I appreciate your thoughts, but I don't think you understand. I do understand, Mr. Toby. I understand very well. That's why I said what I said. John Silverman motioned to Arthur to view his impala. He was doing the hubcaps, which featured a lot of ray-like lines around the perimeter. It was slow going. In some ways, Silverman was impetuous, but in others, he was methodical. Well, Edward, to put it bluntly, we all could have been incinerated. That's something to care about. That's what I am talking about. I can't eat a crab cake in places in this city, and I'm going to be blown up because I'm an American. It doesn't seem fair. Arthur could only see the back of Edward's head, but he knew Edward was smiling his, take that, you ignoramus, smile. Herbie looked up from his tome. Rockefellers bought up all the refineries in Cleveland, he whispered to Arthur. I give Toby a minute, maybe two, before he blows his stack. We're all in this together as Americans, Mr. Toby gestured at the presidents above the side blackboard. I don't see any Negro faces up there, Edward replied. Wish I had a finer lead for my pencil, Silverman said to Arthur. You're doing a fine job, Silverman. You're an artist, Arthur said. That doesn't mean, Edward, that we aren't all Americans who have shared in the American experience. Mr. Toby's voice had gotten louder. Someone in the back of the room softly swore. If you call being left out sharing, then I respectfully disagree with you, Mr. Toby. Edward tapped a pencil on his desk for emphasis. Toby goes over the edge now, Herbie muttered. Arthur nodded. Rebecca's body had come up in his mind again, or it had never left. Edward, this is getting us nowhere. I was pointing out to the class, and Mr. Toby waved an arm at the other boys, that history is now. We have lived through a historic moment. Yeah, Edward, said Bob Caramello, a starting linebacker on the varsity team who sat over by the window. It was a historic moment, and we didn't get fried. He started chuckling. Arthur nodded again to Herbie, but this nod meant, Caramello is psycho. Herbie nodded back in agreement. I've spoken my piece, Edward said. Arthur thought of Seeley's voice and then the voice of Martin Luther King Jr. Were Negroes the only people in America who had any dignity? I agree with Edward, Arthur announced. Who asked you, said Caramello. Now, boys, boys, easy does it, 
Mr. Toby walked over to the row of seats by the windows. A classroom is a place for give and take. All opinions are welcome here. Look at that hubcap. Silverman was almost crowing. He held up the paper to examine it better. Damn! What was that, Mr. Silverman? Mr. Toby asked. Nothing, sir, just following the discussion. Well, that's good. Now today we are going to learn about the women's suffrage movement and Susan B. Anthony. Did someone say women, Caramello asked? He leered appropriately. Arthur looked out the window. The leaves were gone. A few clouds were scudding across the unincinerated city. Several nights ago, he had a nuclear bomb nightmare. What he recalled were people running down a street and screaming, their mouths open like the gate to hell, but soundless, the way screaming was sometimes in dreams. He kept waiting to hear something, but it never happened. Mr. Toby was pointing at some dot in New York State on a map in the front of the room. Arthur didn't wish anything. This class would end. It always did, even if Arthur didn't believe in always anymore. So I'm just going to read a little bit from one more Arthur chapter. This, um, this novel is, um, is very much about, about music and Baltimore. And I'm going to read some from a chapter that has something to do with music. In, uh, in Baltimore. For the past month, Arthur had been slipping out of the house once everyone was asleep, getting into his mother's car and driving around Baltimore for a couple of hours, not in pursuit of anything special like the burlesque houses on the block or Jack's pool hall, but just driving for the sake of driving, being by himself and listening to the radio. He had found a truck stop out on Route 40 that was open all night. He could get gas there, and they had a diner, too, with thick milkshakes and great cherry pie. You could get other things there, too, he learned one night, when a woman in a very short skirt approached him in the parking lot and asked him if he was interested. He said he didn't have any money on him. Too bad, the woman said. You're kind of cute. And she swished her ass off into the night. He didn't hide the driving from his parents, but they didn't say anything to him. It surprised him when they were cool about something, though it may have been more that they were distracted by their own troubles. He could feel the frostiness between them, but it was hard to know what it meant. It seemed worse than when they had arguments, because when they argued, they usually made up. Now they never made up, but he was starting to understand that their grudges were their business. He was moving away from them, not toward them. What he was moving toward, he didn't have a clue about. That was okay. He felt safe in the car, not invisible, but in his own cocoon. He rolled the driver's side window down and felt the night air. Some nights it was still plenty hot, but better than the infernal daytime. He drove through the endless Gentile neighborhoods of Baltimore, places where not a single Jew lived. Not just the fancy areas, but the working class areas too. Miles and miles of little houses with little yards or row houses with porches and minute plots of grass in front and TV antennas on their roofs. 
He couldn't believe people lived in each and every house. And he couldn't believe how everyone cared so much about who lived next door. Sometimes he wanted to holler out the window, wake up, Jew, driving through. He took his time taking off from the red lights and stop signs. The least he could do was linger in a foreign country. It wasn't thinking about prejudice that interested him on these nights anyway. He got enough of that with Edward. And he wasn't going to forget all those people screaming their hatred at Gwyn Oak, which is a demonstration he's been part of here in Baltimore on July 4th, 1963. What he liked about these nights as he drove block after block and mile after mile was listening to the songs. Out of the darkness came endless music, not only the local Negro stations that played rhythm and blues and even some jazz, but after midnight, the stations from farther away, places like Cleveland and Buffalo. That seemed amazing, but there it was right in the car dashboard. Edward liked to tell Arthur that integration was a two-way street. White people had as much to gain, maybe more, from being with Negroes. Negroes are inherently expressive people. Inside or outside of church, the Lord is in their bones, Edward had proclaimed recently. Their music certainly proved that. It had soul with a capital S. Something crucial was being dispensed. And at least for him, sitting there and fiddling with the dial, it was free of charge. One night could feel like many nights, and that was part of the beauty of the driving, too, how one song became another. The joy of it was that there was always another song, always another voice, always another set of words and feelings. The songs came from worlds Arthur knew only dimly, but that didn't stop them from making sense to him. The music of white people, pop, as it was called, sentimentality pretending to be real feeling, one small letter removed from pap, seemed almost comically thin compared to someone named Solomon Burke singing, loneliness, loneliness, it's such a waste of time. Singing, however, was an inadequate word for what Solomon Burke was doing. He was testifying, a word Arthur had learned from sealing. He was sobbing, and he was communing with something Arthur could not spell out, but trusted, the unwieldy mystery of the human heart, and how some things, like Rebecca getting married and leaving him, happened the way they happened and left a person standing alone, a person who cared for another person. When you're waiting for a voice to come in the night and there is no one there, ah, don't you feel like crying? Solomon Burke might as well have been singing to Arthur alone. And he was. That was the gift of it. Arthur had been singing that Solomon Burke tune in his head over a commercial for Moore Park Sausages, Mom. When he pulled the car over to the curb, he was not far from where his grandfather lived near the stadium. He had a dark feeling about Max, how he might not leave the hospital alive. Arthur turned the ignition off and sat there with the nighttime stillness. Moths swarmed in the streetlight not far from his car. Seeing Max lying there in that vast white bed without the familiar cigar and whiskey had been a shock. He had thought Max would flick ash and play poker, 
forever. When Arthur started the car again, this will be my last paragraph, the radio rushed at him. This is my man, the child man, the harmonicat, the genius. Who am I talking? What am I talking? I'm talking little Stevie Wonder. I'm talking fingertips. Can you? Can you? Can you? Can you move to this groove? The voice belonged to a local disc jockey, the Midnight Man. He'd be laying down this patter until six in the morning, rhyming and two-timing, as he liked to put it. Arthur turned up the volume. Thanks. Thanks.